Well, good morning, friends. It's nice to see your faces today. Um, good morning also to our online guests. Thanks for joining us as well. Uh, just a few brief things before we get rolling. Uh, one of them to remind you that tonight we have our um, vision night and ice cream social. Now, as Michelle said and prayed for, our teens are all out at Green Bay, and some of them are quite upset with me that I've set the ice cream social on the night when they have to miss some of the ice cream. So the good news is we're having ice cream first so that uh, the adults all get the ice cream, and then when the kids arrive in their bus, they'll get the leftovers. So this is, um, is well-planned, I think, uh, for parents who perhaps don't always get the ice cream they wish they could have. Uh, just to give you a heads up, tonight, uh, some of the things we'll talk about is I've got, some, I've got some kind of diagnostic comments about how we got where we are. So I'll talk about our culture, I'll talk about some history, I'll talk about Canadian history and why we are in this, I'll talk about some local history, uh, and then we'll focus in on, you know, what's the, what's the experience of people who've lived and been nurtured in this environment, and how does that tell us about what we need to do ministry-wise? Uh, and then I'll present some of the, the, the first impulses that I think we really need to focus on as a church and the places we're going to spend our attention. I've gone over this with our elders this week, and I've gone over it with our staff this week, and um, it's better for having been vetted with them and have their feedback and responses. And we do have time. Uh, we will built in time for questions and answers this evening. So it's not monologue. It gets to be some, uh, some dialogue, and we get to discuss and view this stuff together. So I'm pleased about these things. Let's turn to our message for the day. Uh, we are in the book of First Peter uh, in a series on the exilic life, how to live well in a space of exile. And, and Peter uh, is teaching us how to be authentically Christian in a hostile world, a world that's not our home. And he's encouraging us to strengthen our Christian identity, who we are as Christians, when under the threat of a secular society. Now, last week, I talked about life on the Z-axis, um, the Z-axis, if that's your fancy, uh, life on the Z-axis, and I focused on uh, the differences between how our thinking is, is attuned to God's world and how there's a thinking in the world. Now, you may not know this, but every week, um, one of our staff members, Elliot Harada, produces a 60-second sermon summary. I don't know if you've seen these online. They're a lot of fun. And he goes through, and in 60 seconds, he recaps everything I've said in... 35 or 45 minutes, depending on it. It could be great fun. And I wanted to share his summary with you this morning because it's a kind of perfect intro to what we're going to do today. So uh, let's, uh, let's play this. Uh-oh, with sound, though, because he's, he's already, he's already 10 seconds that we live like 80% on of the Z-axis. The Z-axis represents the spiritual reality that the secular world has rejected. But this leaves them devoid of some fundamental needs. This week in First Peter, we further the idea of this exilic life by saying that we live life on the Z-axis. The Z-axis represents the spiritual reality that the secular world has rejected. But this leaves them devoid of some fundamental needs. Jesus said we don't live by bread alone, but from every word from the mouth of God. One thing that this life gives us is meaning. Without God, what anyone does is doomed to be erased from history. So if something is meaningful, it's because God gives it meaning. The Z-axis also clarifies our decision-making. What do we want? How do we get it? What's the best life for us? The world's answers are innately selfish. It's about finding your best life. Don't make sacrifices if you don't have to. Similarly, the Z-axis provides an ethical life that we can uphold with confidence. A moral standard that doesn't need updating from generation to generation and holds steady from culture to culture. Rejecting this reality is rejecting the fountain of life to drink swamp water with broken teacups. In a meaningless, aimless, lawless world, we alone have the way that brings purpose, direction, order, and inexpressible joy. 
It's impressive. Now, he's, well done. He's not here to receive your applause. Um, but it's a, I encourage you to watch those. Uh, they're good fun. He does a great job of summarizing those things. Um, you remember the old uh, Micro Machines commercials where the guy sp spoke really fast? I f well, one of you laughed because you remember, and I'm, I've dated my age. Some of you have no idea what Micro Machines are. And that's okay. That's okay. We don't all have to be on the same page on these things. Uh, today's passage picks up exactly where we left off from last week. Uh, and before I read it, I'll just give you a kind of a quick overview. We talked about life on the Z-axis, and now what Peter's going to do, he's going to highlight the privilege of knowing what we know. It's an immense privilege to know these things. And then he's going to turn and highlight the responsibility that comes as a consequence of knowing these things. So privilege followed by responsibility. And he ends the passage with some really focused words on holiness. And so we're also going to pause at the end and focus on what does it mean to be holy as God is holy. Uh, one more personal note before I read this text. I think um, of all passages in the Bible, this is probably the most important passage in my Christian life that we're going to talk about today, but not because it's devotionally important. I don't have a great story about like I was reading and God led me to this passage and wow, it's not quite the case. When I was in university, I studied Greek and Latin. That was my undergraduate degree. And in my Greek final class, the senior seminar, the capstone course, I was assigned to write an exegesis paper on a passage in the New Testament that quoted the Old Testament. And this is the passage I was assigned to write about. And so I spent uh, several months going deep in my first time ever really exploring and exposing what's going on in the Bible, especially in the Bible when the Old Testament is used in the New Testament. And so that was that. And then I finally, when Liesl and I got married, we moved to Vancouver in 2005, and I was standing in line at the coffee shop at Regent College, and I introduced myself to the person in front of me. He says, my name is Rick Watts. I said, oh, Ricky Watts, Isaiah's New Exodus and Mark. I'd read this book in the class, and his face almost fell off. He's like, you've read my book? He was unbelievable. And so um, because of that conversation, I ended up becoming uh, one of Rick's marking TAs. And so for the next three years, I was the exegesis TA at Regent, because of, again, because of this passage, where I read uh, 50 papers every year on 1 Peter. I spent so much time in 1 Peter, 50 of the same paper. Every, I mean, it was like... It was grading is quite tedious and onerous. Um, and so that was transformative. And so without exaggeration, I can say that no passage of Scripture has been more formative to my understanding of how to read the Bible. This is the beginning of me understanding how to read the Bible as this passage. So it's a special place in my heart. And with that in mind, let's look together at the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. You're welcome to follow on the screen. If you have your paper Bibles, I encourage you to follow along there. I'll read from mine. Peter says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay? This is our word for today. 
Now, as I said, this passage breaks down, I think, into two sections, one on privilege and one on responsibility. Verses 10, 11, and 12 highlight the privilege of receiving the news of what Christ has done for us, and verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 focus on the responsibility that comes as a consequence of receiving these things. We'll take some moments focusing on each part, and then we'll land on the question of holiness and how to be holy. So let's look together at privilege, verses 10 through 12. First, verses 10 and 11, I'll read them again. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied by the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets who prophesied, Peter says. This is the Old Testament writers. These are people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Moses. These are the people that Peter has in mind. They, he says, were looking for something. They were looking ahead for something to come. They knew that the entire architecture of the Old Testament in which they were inhabitants living out pointed towards something special, something that they didn't quite conceive of what was happening. They knew that God was coming, but they couldn't conceive of quite how that was going to be. And Peter says explicitly that the spirit of God, the spirit of prophecy was at work in them. He was motivating them. He was energizing them. He was pointing them towards his own plans and purposes without revealing the full scope of them, orchestrating the events of history and preparation for the arrival of Jesus Christ. The whole orchestration of the Old Testament is motivated by the spirit towards this arrival of Christ in the flesh. And so everything in the experience of Israel points toward Christ, even though they couldn't quite conceive of it at the time. We've got the piece that makes sense of the puzzle, is what he's saying. And this brings us to verse 12. It was revealed to them, those prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So this first phrase, they were not serving themselves. They knew it wasn't about them. In receiving the Spirit and the words of prophecies, they knew that it wasn't, it wasn't really for them. They were serving someone in the future, you and me. They were serving us somehow. And the whole business of salvation history lands on the church of Jesus Christ. Now, it's really not difficult to imagine the sense of anticipation that followed this. I'm old enough to remember in 1999 when they released The Phantom Menace in theaters. It was the first Star Wars movie in theaters since 1983. And it was so exciting. And we queued up and lined up to get ready to go see it. And we waited with eager anticipation for the arrival of that movie. It was a similar experience in 2001, getting lined up at midnight for the midnight showing of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And I was there in line, and I wasn't dressed up, but there were people all dressed up and ready to go. And I got into my theater, and my whole row was like a, like a cast members. This is before people dressed up. It was crazy. It was nuts. And people were eagerly anticipating what was happening. Some of you, even right now, are eagerly checking your phones for information on October 21st when the next Taylor Swift album will drop. <laughs> Eager anticipation for something coming. And the point is you get it. You get that anticipation. You get that excitement. And something of that excitement, Peter is saying, is in the hearts of the prophets who are looking forward to what's coming. It's coming. It's coming. We know it's coming. It's been prophesied. It's on its way. And with the same sense of anticipation, I want to suggest to you that the greatest album drop of all time, the most anticipated album drop of all time, is when Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary. Whoa. That was it. 
the most significant event. And that sense of momentousness, of memorability, the sense of this is it, this is an emotional experience of what we would call kairos time. Kairos means um, this momentary time. This is our moment. This is it. The things are happening now. This is the appointed time. Now, this knowledge of Christ, the sense of the momentousness of what we have received, is an unimaginable privilege. So look with me. I'm going to highlight the phrase now, the highlight in verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. Things into which even angels long to look. What we get to know and experience firsthand is something Moses didn't know. Moses, for as great as he was, doesn't have what we have. Something Isaiah looked forward to but couldn't fully grasp. Jeremiah looked forward to. Malachi looked forward to. All the prophets throughout history looked toward this event. But we get to know it. Angels themselves don't get to know it. Didn't get to know it ahead of time. It was masked from everyone in the world. And our privileged response should be, what a time to be alive. Wow. We get to experience this. They had pieces to the story. We've got the whole story. They had flashes of the future, but we're living in the future. They had an inkling of what God had in mind for the redemption of the human phrase. They had some idea that God was going to redeem people. We get to be the redeemed. It's amazing, and it's transformative. Now, there are some dangers of privilege. We could take it for granted, couldn't we? We can kind of treat it as, well, I'm used to it. Most, let's, be, let's be crass. Most of us take flushing toilets for granted. Right? You're not thinking about outhouses and buckets, right? And servants who have to clean buckets for you. Or you not having servants having to clean your own buckets. <laughs> we take it for granted, don't we? We take the luxuries for granted that we receive. And it's so easy to take for granted the luxury of the knowledge of Christ. Easy to take it for granted. Or to take big words and kind of not think about them very much, like incarnation. That the God of the infinite universe came down and adopted atomic matter into himself. This should blow your mind every time you think about it. But you kind of, okay, he became flesh. He's just like our neighbor. Uh, it doesn't quite work that way. So we could take it for granted. Now, there's another danger of the privilege, and that's that we could be prideful in it. Not, not prideful relative to, like, the Old Testament characters, like, ha-ha, better than Moses. But sometimes in history, the church has taken its knowledge of Christ and treated other people badly because of it, right? They've, they've not taken it as a sense of privilege that makes them, wow, I'm honored. But they've taken it as, well, we, we know the knowledge of Christ, and we're better than you. And that's perhaps another danger of privilege, the privilege of this knowledge. Instead, our proper response to the privilege of knowing what we know is to be awed, humbled, reverently fearful. We've been entrusted with something incredible. Who are we that we get this privilege, right? What kind of people are we that God would entrust his reputation to us? He's going to risk it on us? I think this is amazing. And so this leads to the second half of today's passage, which is this business of responsibility. Responsibility. So in light of the incredible privilege of being recipients of this remarkable knowledge, we receive a mandate of responsibility. So let me read verses 13 through 16 for you again. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." That lovely word, therefore, in the beginning. Do you guys know what to do with the word therefore? You're supposed to ask a question. You know the question? What's it there for? Okay. 
And it's therefore, because it reminds you of what's just come. You've received this privilege, therefore, this is how you're supposed to respond. You've been entrusted with this incredible thing that not even angels get to see. Therefore, there are some things you need to do. And what follows is a series of commands. There are five commands that follow in this thing. Now, um, I've said this to you before, but I'll just refresh you. In the Greek language, you can issue commands in how you structure your verbs. In English, we have to issue commands with tone of voice. Stop it! You're okay. Right? Go! Get out of here, right? We, we have to make it. You better, we can make a threat. You better stay seated. You know, we can, soothe, we can make commands in these ways. But in Greek, you can ask people to do things with the, with the letters that come out in certain ways. And it's not threatening, but it's hard to communicate in English quite clearly. So there are five commands. Each of these things are a command that we're going to go through now. So command number one from verse 13 is this. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. And literally, this is the greatest translation of Greek in the world. The literal phrase is, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, girding the loins is perhaps something we're not as culturally familiar with, but uh, it actually draws from the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 12 and verse 11, where uh, they are commanded by Moses, now you shall eat it in this manner, eat the Passover meal with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. So anytime a a Jewish person was reading something about girding, they're going to go back to the Exodus narrative because they're reminded of that story. You're supposed to eat a meal with your loins girded. Now, how do you gird your loins? I have a helpful diagram. You ready? (laughs) This is from the the lovely page, The Art of Manliness, which you're not familiar with. They give you lots of helpful things on how to be a man, like how to gird your loins. This is very important. So you're wearing a skirt uh, in the ancient world because this is what you did, and uh, you've got to move quickly but it's going to get tripped up as you go. So what you're going to do is you're going to hoist it up over your knees, right? And then they're going to recommend that you pull it back between your legs, and you're going to divide it into two pieces, wrap it around as a kind of belt, and tie the fabric off. Now your legs are free, so you can work, so you can lift, so you can move quickly, and as in pain six, you can charge your enemies with a sickle, with a sickle um, in these moments. So girding your loins is a kind of standard practice in a culture with uh, long robes where it prepares you for physical labor, for manual action, and for rapid movement, which is why you're supposed to eat the Passover with your uh, loins girded. At any minute, you're running out of this country. You're eating the meal to remember at any minute you're running out of this country. So Peter, in other words, is very explicitly drawing on the story of Exodus of God's of people, excuse me, of the escape of God's people from Egypt, and he's applying that scenario to our life as the church. Gird up the loins of your mind means that at any moment Christ can return and you're called to follow him. Gird up the loins of your mind means at any moment God's spirit may prompt you and you may be called to obedient action on his behalf. You are to be ready at any moment to be called, summoned, and deployed by your king. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's the first command. Command number two. Command number two, also verse 13, is be completely sober. Be completely sober. Now, some of your translations will have the word completely attached to hope completely. I think uh, on my look at the text, it looks like completely belongs with sober. Let's talk about this for a minute. The word nephantes, which means uh, be sober, also means be self-controlled or well-balanced or a uh, person of restraint. Uh, some people have taken this in history to mean that Christians shouldn't ever drink alcohol. I think this probably goes too far. Uh, you have to remember the context of ancient Rome. 
If you were invited to a dinner party where there was drinking, at a certain point, that drinking party inevitably turned into an orgy. So drink, drunkenness, sexual licentiousness, degradation were all of a piece together. And so um, there's a check placed against your engagement in the public sphere. And so if you were not going to participate in the evening as it went on, you left the party before you got drunk. You had to remove yourself from those situations. Now, it's worth mentioning that drunkenness is also a form of escapism from pain. In the ancient world, there weren't a lot of substances you could, you could uh, take into yourself that would alter your mind and give you a sense of uplift. There weren't, you know, you weren't, didn't have TVs to watch. You didn't have things to do. You weren't, it wasn't the same space as now. And so escapism was in the background of this as well. And I think this presents us with a troubling or challenging question, which is where are we turning to substances or to experiences to kind of dull the pain of life? Where are we dulling ourselves against things that hurt? I think that's why it's important uh, that the word totally is tied to be totally, completely is tied to sobriety here. Be completely level-headed. Be clear-headed for the moment that Christ calls you. It's about readiness. There's more. Third command. Peter says you should hope on the coming grace. This is also from verse 13. Hope on the coming grace. And uh, the idea of hoping on what's ahead is to attach yourself to the future. You are, uh, some translations say, fix your hope. But it says hope on the future. Hope on Christ. Now, Christ has come, but we know, of course, Christ is coming again. He's ascended in power, but he will return as judge and finalize his kingdom. We've got a fancy theological term for this. We call it the kingdom that is already, but not yet. Christ has come. His kingdom is inaugurated. It's already here, but it's not yet full, not yet complete. There's still something to come in the future. We know, the, we know what's coming. We know it's the fulfillment of Christ. We're not ignorant in the same way uh, that Moses and the prophets were unaware of what God was going to do in Christ. We know something about it but we just have to wait in the meantime for it to happen. And so we live in the light of the imminent return of Jesus. Now, hoping fully or hoping in this way on Christ also means we are to reject some of the earthly solutions that by definition have to be temporary. We can't hope on politics to save us. We can't hope on the violence of war to save us. Can We, we can't hope on our money to save us. We can't hope on our human plans and efforts to make things right. We can't put our hope in those things in the way that we put our hope in the person of Christ. We have to be sold out for the kingdom of God. Hope on the coming grace. Fourth command, be not conformed. This is in verse 14. Be not conformed. There's a lovely Greek word here. It's suschematitzamenoi, and you maybe could hear schematitz, schematized. Do not be schematized. Do not be stamped according to the pattern of the world. There's a pretty dreary monotony in how the world creates people. They all have the same anxieties and fears and ambitions. They all want to be better than everybody else, but they're all dealing with the same Material. Don't be trapped into that schematic, crushing monotony. Don't be governed, to draw from last week's words, don't be governed by the X, Y axis of life, by this two-dimensional world that just functions on the level of desire. You have to be governed by something else. You have to be schematized by something otherworldly. And in light of this, the fifth command comes to play. But as the Holy One who called you is holy, be holy. 
Now, this, is, this command gets repeated like three or four times. Be holy. As he calls you as holy, be ye holy. And the invitation here is to ignore the gravitational pull of conformity to the world and to attach yourself instead to the gravitational pull of Christ. He's offering you another orbit point. I don't have to be framed by the world around me. I can be framed by Christ and how he calls me. And then he lays out what the scope of this holiness is. He says, it's your whole way of life. It's another lovely Greek word. It's the word anastrophe. It means your entire conduct, your entire way of life. It means, to list it, your personality, your interiority, your psychology. It means your work life, your home life, your imaginative life. Each of these things is to be established according to the pattern of the Holy Christ who calls us. It's everything is to be shaped by his holiness, not just some things. Now, I'm going to return in a moment to what it means to be holy, but allow me to summarize the message so far. You and I have been blessed with an incredible privilege to know Christ and witness the fulfillment of ages in his arrival with the presence of his Holy Spirit. And in response to that, we've got to be ready at any moment for his call. We are commanded to avoid escapist substances that render us unfit for service. We have to wait with eager anticipation for his return. We have to reject the world's ways of doing things, and we have to commit with everything to God's way of doing things. Now, that's a summary of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 16. Well, let's focus on this kind of looming question, what does it mean to be holy like God? How on earth do we do this? Look again at verse 16. Holy you must be because I am holy. That's my translation. Holy you must be because I am holy. Holy. It's a command. This time, it's actually different. It's embedded in the word to be. And, and there's, a, there's a strength, and you, you better be. You've got to be. If, if it's the Picard translation, it's the make it so of these things. It has to happen. Be ye holy. We could add some stress of voice in this. Uh, Peter is here quoting the book of Leviticus. He's quoting probably two passages of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, and chapter 20, 26. And this phrase is repeated in that passage as bookends to chapters 19 and 20. Uh, it's an interesting state of, of repetition. Leviticus 19, 2 uh, says this. It's Moses writing to Israel. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, Leviticus, uh, Levi is in the beginning of it. Levi, of course, is the tribe of priests. Leviticus is a book of priestly laws, uh, priestly restrictions. Uh, it's setting, uh, remember that priests establish kind of the points of boundary interface between the world and God. If you want to reach God, you've got to find a priest in the ancient world. And so these are instructions being given to them. The Leviticus chapters 19 and 20 effectively restate, restate the whole law. They give you, they, they quote from the commandments and quote from the cultural laws and quote from conduct laws. It pulls from the whole set of law uh, with this phrase at the front of the back. So be holy at the front, be holy at the back, and in the middle there's a kind of restatement of what's going on in the Old Testament. There's a few other things in there too. There's a statement of inheritance functions. If you're going to inherit the land, you've got to be holy as God is holy implying that if Peter is saying, if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, you have to be holy as God is holy. A statement of countercultural mandate. Uh, the Israelites were entering a land that was culturally radically different from them, and they had to learn not to live as the cultural patterns had been established for them. Or they had to learn how to dis, uh, uh, disrobe themselves or remove or slough off the Egyptian cultural practices they'd picked up. 
They were being called out of something and into something different. And the front and end of it is, be holy as I am holy. And Peter says, now you also have been called out of a world that has a very different cultural environment than yours, and now we also have to be holy as God is holy. And so the holiness of God is a model and guide for how Israel is called to be holy, and Peter applies that to us. And effectively, he puts a period on the end of his sentence that summarizes the entire conduct of the Old Testament narrative. You know all that stuff from the first three quarters of this book? Yeah, that's us now. That's what he's saying, to be holy as I am holy. Still a question, what on earth is holiness? What does that even mean? Is it like a power? Remember this story about Uzzah, and he reaches out and he steadies the ark with his hand and he gets shot dead? That's like some Indiana Jones-level holiness, right? Where you get zapped or melted on screen because you didn't respect God's holiness. It feels like a kind of magic power, doesn't it? Is it a sense of superiority, right? He's holier than thou. It's one of the things we think about, isn't it? Is it a feeling of like, um, we have a word for the religious, the numinous, a sense of religious awe? Like when you get out and you, when you turn the corner and you see Mount Baker in the distance shining bright and white, you go, wow, what a big mountain. Is that holiness, that sense of awe that comes to you in these moments? I don't think any of these things actually are what it is. Biblically speaking, the key text, I think, for defining holiness is also from Leviticus. It's Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Let me read it for you now. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In other words, don't show up to church drunk. Okay? Aaron and sons. This is, they're the priests. They're in charge. And so as to make, and there verse 10, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now note how it looks like Peter may have had this passage in mind when he's writing 1 Peter 1, 10 10 through 16, the prohibition on alcohol and here a priestly conduct relative to holiness. These things are linked for him. The key phrase here, verse 10, is to make a distinction. Holiness is not an innate property of things. It's not a special feeling of pride or awesomeness and not a sense of uh, religious consciousness. It's a separation. It's a dividing line between this world and the other. If you have two spoons laid out on the table and you say, this spoon is holy and this spoon is not, all it means, there's nothing different about the spoons. It means one spoon you can use to eat your soup and one spoon you have to use for other purposes. This is kind of how things work in the ancient world. And what the distinction means, what the distinction of God's people, because God says, I'm calling my people out to be holy. You're to be distinct. You're to be called out and separate. Didn't mean they were awesome. Didn't mean they had supernatural powers. Didn't mean they were holier than other people, holier than thou in that sense of superiority. It meant they were different, called to be different, pulled out, separate. Holy people have to know the difference between the world and God, to distinguish between the sacred and the profane, the ordinary. They have to know the difference between what is of the XY axis and what things fall from our understanding of the Z axis. Holy people know the difference between these things. And holy people model in their personal lives characteristics that display this radical difference. So we're commanded to be holy as God is holy. In what way is God holy? Well, let's think about this. He is completely other. He's completely different from the world, completely separate from it. He is, in a lovely, fancy word, he is transcendent. I like that word. We cannot make him of this world like the Israelites did with the golden calf. 
You can't make him stuff of this world. You can't manipulate him by earthly means. This is what was happening with the temple, right? We've got the temple, and now we can manipulate God to do things we want. You cannot regard him as a god like other gods. His supernatural characteristics are completely other relative to the theologies of the world. And this is because God is transcendent, eternal, ineffable, and infinite. However, and this is what's so amazing, while being fully separate, God is also fully involved in this world. I mean, he chose to become part of it, didn't he? I mean, he, he made it. It's his. If all of us were to die in a nuclear holocaust this afternoon, who would, res- who would keep the earth? He would. It's his. And yet he has a plan for it and designs and purposes. He is deeply invested in the welfare of his creation. He's completely other, but at the same time, he's completely in. And so that's what it means for God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is fully separate from the world while being fully engaged with it. Fully separate and fully engaged. This is the mystery of holiness. To be in the world, but not of the world. And this is what Peter challenges us to do as well. He wants you to be fully engaged, present, ready, caring, loving, but he also wants you to be fully sold out for the Z-axis, fully committed to God's reality, to the stuff that's going on in God's line of thought, in the world, but not of the world. Now, let's make some, something really explicit here. One of the main errors of the past, I think, is this, is that Christian holiness does not make us the morality police. Calling us to be holy doesn't mean that God has given you a a precious little star and he's made you a heavenly marshal to go out into your life and convict other people for their lack of holiness. To judge them, condemn them, shame them, to try and conjole them into right action by means of our special understanding of who God is. That's not how God has used his holiness for us. That's not what it means. Instead, holiness is a commitment to the extraordinarily difficult task of being in but not of. You don't get to withdraw. You gotta be in. You've gotta love people, care for them, sacrificially serve them, be present with them, suffer alongside them, be ready to hear them, ready to carry them, carry one another. You've gotta do all these things, but you can't be tainted by it. You've gotta keep it in line with this Z-axis thinking. Being fully otherworldly means our ethics, our choices, our lifestyle, our anastrophi. This whole way of life has to be shaped by God's thoughts. Two weeks ago, I showed you this cartoon asking you the question, um, this guy at the door and the two ducks, and the question at the bottom, hard to read, says, have you ever thought about becoming a duck? And I presented this to you, and I realized it's better than I knew, better than I knew at the time, because, of course, ducks thrive in water, but you know they don't get wet. I had a kid's book growing up that said, why ducks don't get wet. Do you know why they don't get wet? They've got oil in their feathers that keeps them from taking on the water. Otherwise, they get waterlogged. And so you're invited to be in and not of the world in the way that a duck is in the water but doesn't get wet. What coats you against that? What oil of anointing keeps you from being tainted by the world? Well, it's God's Holy Spirit. And you'll only survive in this world as a person of the Z-axis, a person called to be in and not of, if you have a filling of God's Holy Spirit, coating your life, saturating you, and guiding you. So can I interest you in becoming a duck? In some ways, it's crazy, isn't it? 
a crazy invitation to become something completely other, to be connected to God in a way that you've never been connected before, to know and be known, to be connected to the transcendent reality of God's supernatural world through the redempting work of Jesus Christ, his son, who came in the flesh and died and rose again and, and now reigns in heaven on high. In some ways, it's crazy, isn't it? And yet there's something ongoing and pervasive about it, isn't there? Maybe there's another reason you might want to become a duck. Maybe you're really tired of the world's sadnesses, tired of the world's lack of solutions. Maybe you're tired of the world's lack of ability to give you any significant meaning. Maybe you've been chasing experiences to kind of salve the wounds of pain, and you know, you know deep in your heart that none of those experiences can cover the gaps. Maybe you've been drinking or smoking up or sleeping around or your browser history, if we were to look at it, would embarrass you deeply. And all these things are ways to fill your heart. Maybe your credit card bill would be the thing we wouldn't want to look at. If you're tired of those things, can I interest you in becoming a duck? And Jesus offers us this. He offers us access to a supernatural power that can transform our daily lives. An immense privilege, but a privilege that comes, of course, with great responsibility. I want to invite our musicians to come, and then I'm going to pray for us. If this morning you have never made a commitment yet to accept Christ as your Lord, there's no time like the moment. And I want to invite you to pray with me in these moments. You can receive him, and he will send his spirit to fill you. And he will call and guide and lead you. And it's very good. If you've, um, if you've been a duck, but you found yourself getting wet, there's no time like right now than just to repent and say, I'm sorry, Jesus, would you fill me with your spirit again? He's always merciful. He's much more merciful than we are. We are hard on each other, aren't we? And hard on ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, if there is a, a man, a woman, or a child here today who has not yet received you as their king, would you draw near to that person now? I pray that there would be no pressure from my voice or from my authority or anything like that, Lord, but that it would be you yourself drawing the person to you. And I pray that as you've made yourself known, they would in this moment admit their need for you, Lord. Admit the futility of life and of their own effort. Admit that they don't have power to do it on their own. And pray simply, Jesus, I need you. Come save me. Lord, I pray also for those today who are feeling soiled and weary, waterlogged. I pray that you would be known as the merciful king that you are, not judging and condemning, but always welcoming back those who strayed. So welcome today, Lord. Welcome and cleanse. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to reflect on the privilege and responsibility. Lead us now as we 
seek to exalt you in the worship. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.